Hello listeners and welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day, immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program that has a singular vision, to promote the health and well-being of veterans and their families. We are currently running programs both domestically on the Gold Coast at St. George's Defence Holiday Suites, as well as internationally in Timor-Leste. We use the Timor Awakening programs as an opportunity to sit down with our participants, either one-on-one or in a group setting, and conduct podcast interviews to capture their stories and their lessons learned, providing insights we can all learn from as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journeys and help others do the same. We'll be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, peer mentoring, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. So whether you're out and about, listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll get a lot out of listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. Thanks, Carl. Good point. Anyone else? Anything? Okay. We'll dive into the avoidant or, you know, otherwise called dismissive because it can feel like that with an avoidant. <laughs> you can feel very dismissed. Um, the, the island, known as the island, they're the rock. Um, they're very reliable, they get things done. Um, you know, in a, in a work scenario, for example, yeah, they'll get stuff done, they'll, they'll spearhead a project. And um, they're not necessarily so great um, as conforming, you know, because they're, they're so they're super independent, but um, they're often very highly successful at what they do because they're very work, they tend to be very work focused because work is safe. It's much safer than relationships. <laughs> so, um, as an avoidant, if you've been in relationships or you've got friends, they, they sometimes they might complain how you're never available. You're always working. Maybe you've heard that before, some of you. Um, so two reasons that you may have, or is it two? Could be more than two. A couple of reasons, few reasons you might have developed an avoidant attachment style are that you ha- there was consistent emotional neglect. Now, either because that's all you, you, your own parents didn't know how to connect emotionally, or, um, you know, they were pretty dysfunctional themselves. Um, there's also, yeah, and it could be because that's what was modelled for you. So there's some families where, you know, we don't do emotion in this family. I came from a family like that. There was one emotion and that was happy face. And the rest of it was not very acceptable. Um, so, so when you learn very young that being sad or being demanding or do, doing all the stuff that kids do, and they do a range of things, that that's not okay, then you, we're very adaptable. So you go, whoo, that's not good. And I need you, you know, in my life. So I will conform. I will adapt. I will not show my emotions. And I will do happy face. I was great at that. Um, but it was, it's pretty exhausting as well. Um, but then I didn't know any different for a time as well. So, yeah, the family code, we don't talk about emotions. Um, or, or families that they don't know how to talk about their needs and their wants and desires, you just kind of fall into line a bit. Or the other scenario that can happen for an avoidant is that you grew up with a parent who was quite smothering and demanding themselves. Um, you had to be sort of their emotional, 
in, in a way, you were being a parent. You had to be there for them. So you can feel um, uh, this sense of deep responsibility then for somebody else's emotional self. And you don't want it, so you avoid it. Um, what you learnt then as a child, if you're an avoidant, you learnt to solely rely on yourself. You look after your own needs. And, um, you know, that's um, too, too far, too far that side of looking after your own needs. So in a relationship, you need a lot of space. You need a lot of space to process. Too much time with people, it can be, it can be a big deal. Freedom is your biggest need. Um, you definitely want a non-demanding partner. In fact, you want a partner that generally doesn't want and need anything from you. That is not going to work. <laughs> that will end in disaster. Um, you want love and connection just like everyone else, even though you may behave as if you don't. You do. Everybody does. It's a core human need. Um, it, you may um, have lost so much connection with yourself, depending on where on that continuum you are, that you, you don't think you need anyone. You know, there was a young man that I um, was coaching when I lived in Cambodia, and he, um, he was so avoidant at six to 17, he was. And, he, and I said, what, what do you want for your future? How can, you know, if you project forwards into your future, what do you see? And he said, oh, you know what I really want is I want to live in a big house by myself with cats. And that, is, that was such a classic avoidant answer. I feel concerned for him. You know, it's going to be very difficult for him. Because he also, see underneath all of that is a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness that goes on. And you might look like you've got it all together, but underneath that, that's really what's happening. And um, I'll tell you what, when I've worked with avoidance, oh, by the way, avoidance tend to avoid doing the work. They'll come when they're desperate you know, because they've had a breakdown in a relationship or, you know, something big's happened in their life, they've lost someone significant, and then they tend to come and they'll just start, they'll feel just good enough and then they scamper. And, uh, or they'll scamper when they have a moment where they actually, in the process, I had this happen first session with a, a young woman, first session, I got her connected in with her um, sense of loneliness and isolation and that was too much for her. She, we made another appointment and then she messaged me. She was putting it off and putting it off and then she said, oh, I'm off on my, the yacht again. <laughs> she had the classic sort of avoidant um, uh, job it was, you know, moving yachts around. So into one harbour. Get to, uh, by the way, because avoidance are very charismatic, so you make a lot of friends, you have a great old time, and then whoosh, off you go, sailing off to the next destination. And she wants, as soon as she got connected with it, she actually just wanted somewhere to land and stay landed. That freaked her out. So she's probably still sailing. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, and they also they have a they also would tend to come if when I've spoken when I work with avoidance they tend to say often not all of them um, I'll ask them maybe about their history and they'll say oh no I had a great childhood great everything was great 
you know. Um, but their partner's been telling me how, uh, about how they, they're never available emotionally, they shut down, they wall them out and things like that. And I think, okay. Ooh. And so you, you, you tend to be disconnected, very much so. Um, so in a relationship, your behaviour would be... Uh, you, you'll send mixed messages. So if you're in the dating scene, you know, you'll, you'll, um, you might start getting involved and engrossed with somebody and then, but, but then you'll disappear for a bit and the person doesn't know if you're on or you're off. Are we on or are we off? You know, what's going on? So you can come into the scene and then disappear from the scene. They tend to withdraw when things get too close and too emotional. Like the girl I was just describing, she totally withdrew from me and I was just a therapist for her. And I just thought, wow, you know, how it must be for her in relationship. Um, um, my brother, Peter, he's very avoidant. And so um, we'll be having conversations if I, and, and because I tend to go a little, a lot deeper than he does, you know, he will suddenly go, I've got to go. <laughs> he can cut it so fast. I go, okay, Peter, I love you. He's like, gone, <laughs> gone quick. Um, the one thing that it's really handy for people who um, happen to be hanging out with um, avoidance is to get to really know, and, and that takes practice, um, their hidden messages that, yeah, I, I really like you and I like hanging out with you. You know, they have different ways of showing it that may not be so obvious. Um, so yeah, uh, you, you will send mixed messages about your commitment to a relationship. Somebody, people say, I've been going out with this person for three years, I still don't know if we're on. And, I, and, and they also feel they can't ask, because avoidance are good at putting out a screen, don't ask, they don't even have to say. They can be quite critical. Um, no one does as much as me, I'm, um, uh, people don't do things well enough, I may as well do it myself, things get done quicker. Um, you shouldn't, and, and they, have, uh, they can have criticism and judgment for people who ask for help. So even a secure person who will ask their avoidant partner or friend or colleague for some help, the avoidant will be quietly or outwardly judging them, saying, you've got a need, what is wrong with you? Yeah. That's just a defence mechanism because they've learned to solely rely on themselves, so must everyone else, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, they very much want to be in control. And they're unlikely to open up uh, their private world and thoughts to others, um, which is really very, that's tough, you know, the sort of the stoic warrior, not great, because at some point you need people, we all need people. So the exercise that we'll do with this is um, because, you know, being critical of others is a thing, avoidance often won't be so generous with acknowledging others and, um, um, you know, what they're good at or what they like about them. It's difficult for them. I mean, my brother, I'll see from my brother what he thinks of me from what he's posted on Facebook. Um, my amazing sister, he's ne he cannot say that to me ever, but he can write it and he can tell other people. I've had clients who'll say that, you know, my mother, she's never said anything good to me, but she tells all her friends. Why can't she tell me? So 
this exercise is that where you are going to share with your buddy there um, one good thing about someone you know. And make it as personal as possible, you know, um, rather than um, they're really smart and I'm, I admire their smartness. Well, if you're listening and they stop at that, just say, well, what is it about their smartness that you like? And, uh, you know, it might be something like, well, what I like about that is that they're willing to share their knowledge. They're generous with that. Yeah. So now we're getting a little deeper down, their generosity and their sharing. Yeah. So see if you can challenge yourself to make it personal. Something I like about someone. So a couple of minutes, the other person, you will again be listening, active listening, kind eyes and, um, and, and help. You know, if you're going, yeah, okay, mate, um, they're a good surfer. What about that? <laughs> what do you like about that? How does that affect you personally? Yeah? So, a couple of minutes. If you haven't swapped, you need to swap. <laughs> Finishing up, okay. They have to be quick, I'm sorry, because of our time restraints, but um, how did you go? And any, anything anyone wants to share or ask a question about? Here's the moment. Beth, I had a question about just the, this, like this analysis in general. Um, focuses a lot on like who you are depends on sort of how you grew up but how do you explain where like my wife she's um and she's done this stuff before so she's the anxious mm. preoccupied mm -hmm. but her brother is the island mm -hmm. and i look at my kids and my eldest kid is the same he's the anxious avoidant and mm -hmm. the youngest one is the island yeah how do you explain sort of how people are so different growing up in the same yeah. environment. Yeah, it's a good, great question. Well, it could be. Yeah. Um, it could be, um, for example, if you got bullied at school, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure, that could turn you into an island, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, tucking in, staying low, or it could turn you you know, into anxiously attached, yeah. Um, it could also be that you've got two parents, one's anxious, one's avoidant, so you model after one or the other. Um, I'd say that would be highly a likely scenario. Um, the other thing that I didn't say, because there's so much to say about this topic, but when um, the research has showed that Children who have, or babies that are just more easygoing temperament, uh, have um, are more likely to be securely attached. So, it it can be that you know maybe you've had a difficult birth as a child, and you just you you you've got you're a fussy eater, you've got a lot of colic, blah blah blah. You're not settled as a child. You could become a little more anxiously attached even with secure parents because it's a, a bit of a nature thing as well. So there is that factor. Most of it's the family we grew up in. Um, but also you can have life experiences. 
So one of my clients, she was a very secure family. Um, and then at age 12, so both her parents were born deaf and they, um, they had this wonderful, beautiful family, the children were hearing. And um, at age 12, they had a very, very close friend die. And this friend, you know, was sort of the main support person of these, this deaf couple. And it rocked their world so strongly that it threw them back. The guy, the, the father had had a very unstable upbringing, alcoholic parents, but he got his life on track and had this beautiful family. Then that event happened. It threw them both. He went back into alcoholism. She, they both ended up into becoming alcoholics. That woman, young woman I worked with went from a stable, secure base to chaos. And she would be, um, she was highly anxious in, yeah. And also this next one, she went into this disorganized one. So yeah, is that, is that helpful? Yeah. yeah, cool. Thanks for asking that question, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, so yeah. tying in from that, that question, how much of behavior do you think is innate or it's just in your DNA? Oh, that's the age-old question, I think, is, you know, nature-nurture. Um, I, I think there's a good um, brushstroke of, of things. Um, just with, over the years with working with people, I found it really fascinating that um, people, some people seem to connect in with someone within the family. It could even be an uncle, might not even be a parent, and... and, and I look at one of my sons, he is so like my husband's brother. And I just think, you know, that's amazing. So his behaviours, even though he's been brought up in quite a different family to what my husband's birth family is, there's still this, you know, generational thing passed through or DNA thing, if you want to call it that too. Yeah, so it's a blend. And I think depending on the level of in saying that, I was just going to say the sensitivity of somebody. So I think about my youngest son. He was a, he was a much more sensitive little soul than the two older ones. And so I see him as having been more affected by at the home environment. The other two were more resilient. Um, so, yes, there's some of that. Yeah, sort thanks, Dawn. A, a sort of a follow-on question, Beth. Um, my grandparents were born in the 1800, late 1800s, so they went through the Great Depression and the wars. My parents were born you know, in the 20s and 30s, and back in those days, you know, love and caring and emotion seemed to be the bottom of the things that needed to be done. You know, it was food and clothing and shelter, and it's typically the whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs things. So over you know, the generations, as our society has changed, I think the parenting styles have changed quite a lot. And I'm just wondering if there's any research out there that sort of that talks about how, um, or points to how the parenting styles have changed and how that has flown through to impact what you're talking about now. Yeah, well, um, good question. I can't answer that. Has their research been done? Probably. 
because you know people there's you know um, uh, people do family therapist therapy there's social science that's studied to see the changes in society and the impacts so yes most likely um, um, from my um, recollection the founder of this um, John Bowlby is his name. He, he actually, he's an English guy and it was in the Second World War that he, so he was a psychologist already. And then, you know, a lot of the children were taken from London, from the cities out into the countryside. They were separated from their parents for safety. And, um, and he started to notice, you know, once some um, um, <coughs> life started to normalise again and families came back together, that's when these very different behaviours started to show up very clearly. And he was the first one to start researching. So there have been people in this, just in the attachment theory side of things, research has been done um, in terms of, first it was only about children and then they've developed it into, well, if that has been, if that's affected a child's life, how then does this affect you as you grow up? So they've done that research. And as times change, um, you know, you just gave that description where my father grew up, even, even without the hassles, the, the thing of war and poverty, they, you just, children were seen and not heard. And, but just every generation that comes along, we shift things, we shift things. So it is going to become more it has become more important, you know, that we know this stuff because it didn't matter so much. You just did what you were told. Even in relationships, it, relationships weren't necessarily you didn't choose. That's a fairly new thing. You got families hooked up. You got a couple of cows. We've got some land. This is a good match. It was a business arrangement. And, um, and so all this emotional need stuff that who cared what was more important was you know sticking together as a family and making something and so times have just changed and we haven't kept up with it and learnt much about how to be relational and you know I think it's actually um, very exciting that we are here except we're a bit clueless but you know there's so much we, we're we've so much has happened so quickly in terms of teaching people about better communication and teaching people how to connect. There's, it's, it's there. So, yeah. Um, don't know about research that you specifically you asked, but does that sort of help a little bit answer some of what you asked? Thank you. I thought I'd better check because I might have gone off topic there a little bit. <laughs> it's a big topic. Anybody else? Yeah, it's just uh, seeing so where all veterans, bar one person in, in this um, program, and you talk about these different emotions and and f uh, partnerships and, and all that. Mateship is absolutely massive in the Defence Force and a lot of veterans that leave either by choice or by medical arrangements, they're lost because of their mateship and their, their emotions that they normally show is completely different when they're with their mates compared to their families at home, which is causing a lot of problems at home and probably defence is the, the biggest area where there's a lot of breakup of, of families because of that 
that area. How, how as a mentor, could we sort of tap or guide people in in that right direction or finding out those emotions that are, they're actually feeling? That's a, such a huge question <laughs> that you've asked. It's a great question. Mm. So I would probably have to ask you a few questions because I'm also, I'm maybe the second person in the room who's not in the forces um, or hasn't been. Um, um, what is it, as a defence person, what is it that creates that bond that, that makes you feel safe enough to share? I think, I think it's taught to us from the first time we actually joined the Defence Force, as in your, your mates are there, they, they've always got your back. You know, you never leave your mate behind. So, and all the way through your training, you're spending more time probably with them in closer quarters than, and in, in difficult situations than you'll ever do with your family. So that, that I think is, is where it sort of is the problem in the end is that they miss that being that close to their mates because even the old veterans now they they can actually get together and talk amongst themselves a lot freer and a lot easier because they're with their their um mates that they've either served with or they know they've served whereas they'll go home to their family and just wouldn't even give them any information Am I fishing for this? I certainly am because I'm in this situation right now. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, I mean, I would imagine, so the message is so loud, strong and clear and continuous for all of you in, in, in the forces, right? You be there for your mates. They've got your back. They're the one you're going to need, yeah? You've got to trust them. So you're told this message all the time. And... And, and so it becomes, I imagine, the overarching, the over, you know, that's the thing I've learned. Now, you may not have learned, that, gotten that same message ever before in life, that you can trust and you must trust. Actually, it's life and death. So you, in, in many ways, you, it's life and death, right? So you must do this. And but when it comes to relationships, it doesn't have that intensity about it this is not like life and death you must trust you must share we need to know what's going on between each other so i know you know where to be when i need you kind of thing um so i suppose it's a whole would become a whole learning then of firstly starting to notice the partner or ex-partner whatever you know at home that how they do have your back, how they do support you. It's just so different. It looks so different. Perhaps you don't notice. And how, um, you know, working on ways to develop trust with that person and small manageable bite-sized pieces along the way to build trust and um, I think the last time I was here, somebody somebody laughed at the end and said, "I reckon most of us in the room are avoidance," you know, <laughs> and and it's it's understandable. The whole culture of, would probably make you that way, but perhaps that was already in people anyway before they started.
Thank you so much for listening, guys. And if you do have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do, of course, encourage you to share this podcast out to anyone who you feel may benefit from it. Thank you so much, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next podcast. Bye for now.